A life well lived is a joy to behold. Unfortunately, there are a relative few people who have lived consistently for the Lord for the entirety of their lives. This morning, we are going to consider the life of one such individual, the good King Josiah. Note what the Bible says about him in 2 Chronicles 34, verses 1 and 2. It says, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And now we have this statement concerning his life and character. And he did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, and walked in the ways of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. We have a further and even a greater description of Josiah in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 25, where there it reads, Before him there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all his heart and all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. So we find that Josiah is totally unique. There is no other king who was like him in the way in which he turned to the Lord. He stands out in a crowd. Josiah is totally unique in the way that he dedicated himself to following the law of the Lord. He wanted to do the will of God with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might. In turning to the Lord, there is an emphasis on his repentance. He turned away from sin and instead followed the Lord Jesus wholeheartedly. For it says again, with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might. So what is it about Josiah that makes his life so unique? This morning we're going to have to take an overview of these verses for there is so much scripture here to cover. So what I'm going to do is, <clears throat> excuse me, look at some very important milestones in the life of Josiah. Times in which he has to make decisions and actions that are going to define him as a person and as a king. We want to look at these milestones in his life. The theme is a consideration of the life-changing milestones in Josiah's life that enables him to follow the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might. The first milestone in the life of Josiah comes at merely eight years of age. And that is when he becomes king over Jerusalem. Second Chronicles 34.1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. The next milestone comes at the age of 16. For it is that time that he is saved. Notice verse 3. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. I understand that terminology, to seek the God of David, to mean that he was converted, or in our vernacular, he would have been saved. And 
It comes at the age of 16, to which our Bible points out is a young age. For it emphasizes in verse 3, for the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, while he was yet a boy, he was a youth. He was young to be king, and he was also young in the time of his conversion. Now, one might think that 16 indeed is young to be uh, a king, and it was, although there, uh, there are others, but that's very young to be a king. We might not think it's so young to be saved. We know people that are saved when they're three or, or four years old. Uh, very, very young children can and do come to the faith. But the point that is being made is that his conversion comes early in his life, as opposed to a much older age. He stands in stark contrast to his grandfather Manasseh. Remember, we just looked at Manasseh, and Manasseh is converted at a much later time in his life. After having lived a life of great wickedness and rebellion towards God. But Josiah, having come to know the Lord at a young age, is preserved from all that. He doesn't have the baggage that Manasseh had. He doesn't have all of the difficulties that others had when they had lived a life of profligacy and then came to faith. Last week we looked at the repentance of a wicked king. Today we focus on the repentance of a good king. I would point out that the phrase in verse 2 that reads, he began, with an emphasis on the word began, to seek the God of David, tells us that his conversion is but just the beginning of his spiritual pilgrimage. When he came to know the Lord, he was not yet arrived. He has much yet to learn and to experience. But he has set out on a good course. He is walking down a good path. He knows the Lord. He is on a good trajectory for himself and for the kingdom. So application, first of all, my desire is that one would come to faith at a very young age. What a blessing it is. And you can rejoice if you were one of those that came to faith when you were three or four or five years old. I was very young. I was probably five or six when I came to faith. And sometimes as I got older, I thought, you know, I don't have much of a testimony because of the fact that I was saved so young. I don't have this wonderful story of God's deliverance from outward such things as, you know, addictions, etc. But then I came to realize what a blessing it is to have been preserved from many of those things, to to not have to go through those problems, those, those difficulties, not that I was without sin. But so here is an admonition. Come to faith early in life, and you will be spared from much of the trials and difficulties that life has to hold. I certainly hope that if you are a teenager, you have now committed your, your life to Christ. You've I'm sure had many of opportunities to have heard 
And you will not be missing out on life by committing your life to Jesus Christ at a young age. If you have accepted Christ as your Savior, that means it should shape and mold your future decisions, as it will Josiah. Again, you're off to a good start. It's wonderful that you know the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior. But just as Josiah is on a pilgrimage, so too are you, and so too am I. There's much more to being a Christian than simply being saved. It isn't that we offer a prayer and now we know that we are acceptable in God's sight and and that we have hopes of eternal life, but rather to come to know the Lord as your Savior, that means now indeed he is our Lord and he is to be followed, he is to be worshipped, he is to be honored, he is to be glorified, he is to be obeyed. So really, conversion is the beginning of a pilgrimage. The next milestone comes at the age of 20, at which time Josiah begins some very significant religious reforms. It's found in verse 3, or uh, in the middle of the verse. And in the 12th year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Yasherim, and the carved and metal images. Some of the commentators believe that it might be at this age, at age 20, that he was fully reigning without the aid of a counselor or overseer. Certainly it was common in the Old Testament that when a king was very, very young, he had someone that was kind of his counselor, his overseer, uh, someone that was directing him in his kingship, uh, and eventually that king would come to full power. There are those that believe that it's at the age 20 that he is now at full power, and he begins these religious reforms. Those religious reforms are given to us in verses 4 to 7, and they are quite extensive. It's a wonder uh, in the way in which he has purified the nation from all of their false worship and false gods. But for sake of time, I move on to the next milestone, which comes at the age of 26. 26. It's in the 18th year of his reign. He begins to restore the temple looking at verse 8. Now, in the 18th year of his reign, when he had cleansed the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Masiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Jehoahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. The removal of false worship had pretty much been completed, for it tells us in verse 8, now in the 18th year of his reign, when he had cleansed the land and the house. So by this time, most of the false worship has been removed. The idols, the prophets, etc., have been taken out of the land. And so now he seeks to restore the temple to its previous glory. End of verse 8. To repair the house of the Lord his God. The Holman Bible Commentary says this. The temple had been shut down by Ahaz, purified by Hezekiah, desecrated and then reopened by Manasseh, neglected for worship by Ammon, and now more than 300 years old, it seemed to cry out for a thorough restoration, and Josiah was prepared to undertake the project. And so we have this restoration of the temple 
And in verses 9 through 13, there's a description of the process of how this was done. Those who were placed in oversight, where the monies came from, how the work was to be accomplished. All of that is found in verses 9 through 13. But we want to jump to verse 14. Well, we find that during the process of restoring the temple, they stumble upon a copy of the scriptures. During the process of restoring the temple, they stumble upon a copy of the scriptures, verse 14. While they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. There is elation, there's joy. As expressed in the Hebrew word for the word found, there are a number of different words translated in the English as found. This is a word to discover with great joy and delight. Look what I found. It's a copy of the scriptures. The book of the law was found. When the scripture states that the law was found, we might ask the question, how was it that it was lost in the first place? How could they ever have misplaced or forgotten about the word of God? That they would be amazed that they came upon it as they are working through the temple, dusting off old places, going through the rubble and, and all the material that's there, and look and behold, what's, what's stashed away here is a, it's a copy of the word of God. Who would have thought it? Who would have thought it? There's, there's a copy of the scripture in the temple. The scriptures were there all the time. They had just been ignored. Right now, I am in the process of moving the books from my office to my home. Now, I don't have enough room in my home for the large amount of books that I have in my office, so I'm in the agonizing process of paring down my library. I'm going through the painful task of deciding what to keep and what not to keep. I'm also going through that same process with the books that I already have at home in order to make room for the ones that I'm now bringing to my home. And as I was going through the books that I have at home, I found a small-sized New Testament tucked away on the shelf that was my mother's. And so I, I took it down and began looking through it, and I discovered that she had written many important dates and also significant events in the white pages of her New Testament, and also made some comments and recorded some quotes that were significant to her. Now, I would forgotten that that New Testament was there. I knew of its presence, but it had slipped from my mind. But I was kind of surprised when I looked through it again and saw these notations for I had forgotten that they were there because I just simply hadn't looked at it for a long time. Hold that thought. So now the book of the law was rediscovered as it were. But I want you to see herein is the wisdom, goodness, and grace of our God that this copy of the scriptures was found, the wisdom, goodness, and grace of our God. 
For God had taken steps to preserve his word. He had commanded that a copy of the law would be placed by the Ark of the Covenant. I invite you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 21. I would, uh, excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 31. I'd like you to, to see this for yourselves. Deuteronomy chapter 31, keep your bulletin or something. We're coming right back to chapter 34 of 2 Chronicles. But in Deuteronomy 31, 24, it reads as follows. When Moses had finished writing the words of the law in a book, to the very end, meaning all of it, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant. So God had decreed, God had demanded that a copy of the law of God would be placed beside the Ark of the Covenant. Right? That, that perpetually, that that was to be a resting place, that was to be a place where the law was to be found, next to the Ark of the Covenant. But note with me, the reason that the book of the law was to be placed by the Ark of the Covenant is also given. Verse 26 of Deuteronomy 31. Take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant, O Lord your God. And now notice the reason that it may be there for a witness against you. That it may be there for a witness against you. That, that it's going to be there. Not to be removed. Not to go away. It's always going to be next to the Ark of a Covenant in order to be a witness against you, to testify against you, to reveal God's judgment against the nation of Israel. God had made sure that his word could not be ultimately forgotten or lost. The reason that they discovered this book is because, yes, they had forgotten all about it. They had wandered. They had not even been worshiping God. But when they came back and now are restoring the temple, there it was, just in accordance with what God had said and fulfills the purpose for which he had established it. It's going to bear witness to God and to his judgment. In my mother's New Testament, as I looked through it this week and was reading the various notations, I found this quote that she had recorded from the famous evangelist Dwight L. Moody. Moody said, and I quote, the Bible will keep you from sin, and sin will keep you from the Bible. Those truths are perfectly illustrated in our text. Their sin had kept them from the Bible. Now we're going to find out that the Bible is going to keep them from further sin. 
This is the unique role and the preciousness of the Bible. An important lesson for us to learn that we do not want to neglect or forsake or lose sight of the Word of God. And our sin is very apt to make us do that very thing. And so we want to keep the Word of God ever before us, knowing that that Word of God is going to be the agent of which God will use to preserve us from sin. So herein is the wisdom, goodness, and grace of God. To have a copy of the book placed next to the altar so that in time to come, when a wayward people have gone astray, that there will be a testimony against them. These scriptures were brought to the king in verse 15. And Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan, the secretary, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, verse 16. Shaphan brought the book to the king. Let's jump down to verse 18. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. So now the king hears the word of God. It would seem that this is the first time that Josiah, this king who's a good king, this king who's seeking to walk with God, this is the first time that he has heard the entirety of the laws that existed at that point, of the scriptures that they had up until that time. The first time. And when he hears that word, he's shocked. He's shocked. Or the next milestone is Josiah's response to the word of God when it's read to him. What was his response? Well, first he was convicted. Notice verse 19. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. Tore his clothes. It was a symbol of repentance. So here is this good king who now is going to tear his clothes in repentance for he is going to discover that they have not been worshiping God as they should have been worshiping him all along. His response was that Josiah wanted to hear and understand more of what the scriptures said. Notice verse 21. Go inquire of the Lord. Go ask what all of this means. What, what is the significance of what we have just read? He wants to know what is going to become of himself personally and also to the kingdom due to what he has found in the scriptures. Verse 21, go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. He is concerned for he understands that they are deserving of God's judgment. End of verse 21, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. He says we are... We are under the knife. We, we are in danger. We are in peril. Our fathers have not done any of this. And God's hand of judgment is ready to fall on us. So he tears his clothes, sends word to Hilda, what do we do? What's going to happen to us? He wants to know. So the prophetess Huldah is consulted to find out 
what God is going to do. Verse 22, so Hilkiah and those whom he, the king had sent went to Hulda the prophetess. She announces that judgment will indeed follow upon the nation. Verse 23, she said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, namely King Josiah, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah, all of this is going to happen. Everything that God says, all this judgment is going to take place. The reason is that they have been unfaithful to God. Verse 25, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. End of verse 25, therefore my wrath will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. And in the months, excuse me, in the, in the weeks to come, we will see God's judgment coming upon the nation. Now Josiah gets word concerning what is going to happen to him. He's going to be spared the outcome that will come upon the nation. Middle of verse 26, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard. Now verse 28, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place and the inhabitants. As for you, you're not going to experience this. As, you, as for you, you're not going to go through it. Okay, Josiah, the nation's going to fall, but it's not going to be seen by you. But what I really want us to focus on this morning is the reason that God gives for judgment not coming upon Josiah. Why is Josiah spared? What I want to emphasize, it is not because of Josiah's good works and the reforms that he had made. Rather, it was his response to the words of condemnation that he heard from the word of God. It is because of his repentance. Look at verse 27. Because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants. That's the reason that God is going to spare him. Because your heart was tender, you humbled yourself before God when you heard the words against this place and its inhabitants. God doesn't say it's because you rid the nation of all these false gods. He doesn't say because you removed the high places. He doesn't even say because you restored the temple. Joash had restored the temple. It wasn't your good works, Josiah. It's your humble spirit of dependence upon me. That's where true godliness always lies. That is what spares from judgment. It's not our good works. Not before we're saved or after we're saved. That's not what brings us brownie points before God. And Josiah was humble enough to understand and recognize that. 
He was not proud. He was not arrogant. He didn't say, oh God, look at all the things I've done for you. Surely you're going to spare me. No, no. He humbles himself. It says that he did not harden his heart, but rather his heart was soft and teachable. Verse 27, because your heart was tender, tender. So many before him and also after him, when they heard of God's judgment, hardened their hearts. Most notably is his son Jehoiakim. Now, the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah's ministry coincides with Josiah and Josiah's son Jehoiakim. And in the book of Jeremiah, in chapter 36, starting in verse 1, there is an account of God bearing witness against Jehoiakim, Josiah's son, and sends a book of the law to Jehoiakim to condemn him, and it's read before him. Listen as I read. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, King of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations. From the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah until today. Then the king sent Jehudi to get the scroll, and he took it from the chamber of Elishamah, the secretary. Jehudi read it to the king and all the officials who stood before the king. It was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter house, and there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. As Jehudi read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire, in the fire pot, until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. And neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. They did not repent. The arrogance that this king, as the word of God is read to him, takes a knife and just throws it to the fire. He wants nothing to do with it. He's just rejecting it. He throws his hands up in the air and is against it. Josiah's response, Josiah's response is different. Look at verse 2 Chronicles 34, 27. Because your heart was tender, you hardened, humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes. You repented. It says specifically he tore his clothes. It says specifically that Joachim didn't. These are outward signs of repentance. Josiah did not harden his heart, for his heart was tender before the Lord. Now, as we look at this text, the emphasis is that Josiah was not proud or arrogant, but rather that he humbled himself and submitted himself to the Lord. It tells us twice in the text that he was humble, verse 27, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you humbled yourself before me. It's, it's an emphasis on his humility. 
The humility comes first of not being proud about his good works and, and so on. He did not see himself as meriting God's favor. This in spite of all the good that he had done, removing false worship and the restoring of the temple. Instead, he humbled himself and accepted God's condemnation. The fact that Josiah humbled himself, as I said, is mentioned twice in this text. So what does this humbling himself and repentance really look like? Notice, as we look through this verse carefully, humbling oneself to repentance, what's its nature? Well, his act of repentance was a sincere act. He did not talk about humbling himself. He did not think about humbling himself. He did it, as symbolized in the tearing of his clothes and weeping before the Lord. Secondly, his act of repentance was a voluntary act. For it tells us that he humbled himself. Notice 27. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard the words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself. This is an active as opposed to a passive word. He humbled himself as opposed to being humbled. There is a marked difference between a person who humbles themselves and a person who's been humbled. Sometimes, oftentimes, people are humbled because of their sin. That is, their sins are brought to light. There are consequences that are that are born. There is a reputation that is sullied. And as a result, the person is humbled. They're embarrassed. Their sin has been made known. David was a man who was humbled. He did not humble himself. He was humbled. Remember, God sent Nathan to David and told David a story in which David was angered and recognized the sinfulness of the person in the story. And then Nathan says to him, David, you're the man. You're the person in the story. David, that's you. God humbled David. Josiah humbled himself. Oh, that if we would read the word of God and we find conviction, that when we respond in humility, acknowledge our sinfulness, and though the sinfulness is done in the dark or even the ignorance, or even not directly our fault, I mean, Josiah is repenting of what his his fathers had done. He inherited this mess. And he sought to make it right, but even in seeking to make it right, he hadn't come to a full understanding of the grace and mercy of God. And so he humbles himself further. He cries out to God for forgiveness. Literally, he weeps. Josiah was humbled simply by hearing the word of God. 
No one had to say, Josiah, this is pointing to you. Josiah got it. Josiah accepted it as pointing, uh, pointing to him. Next, his act of repentance was a devout act, for he wept before the Lord. He wept before God. The emphasis being before God. That is, he humbled himself in God's sight, not before men or to be seen by men, of which the Bible has much to say about the Pharisees, for they wanted to be appearing humble by the outward actions and the things that he, they had done. Josiah didn't want to appear to be humble. He really was humble. And he humbled himself before God. And in humbling himself before the Lord, he exalts God. He elevates God. Humility recognizes the greatness of others, and in particular, the greatness of God. Second Chronicles 34, 31, we find this purposeful statement. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. We began by looking at that descriptive phrase that, that he walked with the Lord, all his heart, all his soul, and all his might. How did that happen? It was a purposeful act. Verse 31. He made a covenant to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments, his testimonies, and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that are written in this book. People, obedience starts with a purposeful life. Following the Lord isn't just something that we stumble into. If we're going to live a life of godliness, it's a, con it's a conscious choice. It's a commitment. And many times, it's a commitment that comes sometime after conversion. When we really get it, when we really understand all the blessings and goodnesses of God that he showed upon us, there's this, this time of real commitment and dedication in which we present ourselves to God for him to really do whatever he wants to do with us for his honor and his glory and to seek to be obedient to him. For his glory, not for our reward, but because he's deserving of it. Because he is God and we are not. He is to be exalted. Not us. Which leads us to the next and final milestone that takes place in the very same year, same year that the word of God is found. It's the unique way in which the Passover is celebrated. Verse 1 of chapter 35. Josiah kept a Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem, and they slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the first month. Then in verses 2 through 17, we have a description of the manner in which the Passover was celebrated. In the description of their celebration of Passover, we see their commitment, their attention to detail, the organization, the use of their resources, the following of the law of God. We don't have time to look at all that, but 
what we do find is a summary statement in verse 19. In the 18th year of the reign of Josiah, this Passover was kept. Now verse 18, no Passover like it had been kept in Israel since the days of Samuel the prophet. None of the kings of Israel, that would include David, none of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as was kept by Josiah and the priests and the Levites and all Judah in Israel who were present. Josiah had sought to restore the temple. In that restoration process, he discovers the law. And when he hears the law of God, he repents and he seeks God's forgiveness. And God forgives him. God delivers him. Josiah, you're not going to see this. It's coming, but you're not going to participate in it. Why? Because of my grace. Because I've heard your tears. I've seen your repentance. I've seen your heart. I know that you love me and you seek my forgiveness. Therefore, it's not going to come in your days. This king who is so concerned about restoring the temple now becomes concerned with worship itself. It isn't just about the exteriors. It isn't just about the motions and forms. It's about the reality of worship. This Passover. The Passover celebrates the deliverance of the children of Israel from the land of Egypt. God's mercy and God's grace and his power to deliver. When Josiah is told that God is going to deliver him. It just brings a whole new understanding and joy to him as he thinks of the Passover. This God who, who delivered the nation of Israel, this God has delivered me. This God has saved me. This God has forgiven me. People, when... When we really understand the grace of God that we experience and how undeserving we are of that, and we don't think it's because of our good deeds, our taking away the idols, or even our restoration of the temple, but it's the fact that we recognize apart from the grace of God, I'm condemned. No good thing can ever make me acceptable in God's sight. But if I'm willing to acknowledge that, if I'm willing to accept God's forgiveness and not just throw the scriptures into the fireplace, I'm willing to heed it and obey it, then forgiveness is mine. And when we understand the grace of God, it changes our worship. Changes our attitude as we sit in the pew. It changes the way we sing the hymns. It changes the way in which we listen to the scriptures. It changes the way in which we interact with each other. God has been good to us.
God has delivered us. God has saved us. Conclusion. What do we learn from the life of Josiah and walking with the Lord? We're going to truly follow the Lord. It's essential that we begin with our walk with being saved, being converted. You can't follow the Lord without coming to faith in Christ. It's essential that as we grow, we seek to rid ourselves of sin within and around us in following the Lord. It's essential to have one's life governed by the Word of God, not merely to possess it, but to read it. And not merely to read it, but then to follow it, to obey it. It's essential that when we learn that we have fallen short, that we do not resist or fight against the Word, but we repent and we humble ourselves before God. In that repentance and the forgiveness that we experience, our worship comes alive. In our worship, the word worship comes from an old English word that was, a, that was originally the word worth. W-O-R-T-H-S-H-I-P. Worth-ship. The English word worship means to acknowledge the worthiness of God. God is worthy. What is he worthy of? You know, we have a worship service. What does that mean? A worship service. What is it? Why the word service? For when we come before the Lord, we are acknowledging the worthiness of God, that God is to be served and obeyed. So Paul writes to the Romans, chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, based on God's mercy, based on God's forgiveness, based on what God has done for you, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is, King James, your reasonable service, the ESV, which is your spiritual worship, which is a good translation, your spiritual worship. For us to worship God, it's to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. It's to say, God, here I am to live for you. I, I want to, to live for you. That's what Josiah did when he turned to the Lord with all his heart, all his soul, and all his might, his whole being. God, I'm yours. I want to follow you. I want to hear your word. I want to appropriate it. I want to do what it says. That's worship. And that will preserve our lives, our consistency in following the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God, I pray that you would help us, help us to, to love and desire to serve you. Help us to be humble before you and to recognize our unworthiness and your complete worthiness. Lord, you do not exist to serve us. We exist to serve you.
Lord, as we worship, may it revolve around your worthiness. And may we understand that the essence of worship, according to the scripture, is presenting our bodies as living sacrifices. You don't ask us to kill ourselves, but you ask us to give our lives to you. All our heart, all our soul, all our might. Lord, you are deserving. Help us to do so with joy, recognizing your great goodness to us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.